This is a collaboration between the Imperial Innovation and Entrepreneurship podcast and the Young Entrepreneur's Journey podcast. Welcome to season one of the Imperial Innovation and Entrepreneurship podcast, hosted by Yasmina, Jayshan, and Sam. We're bringing to the table insights from game-changing entrepreneurs, business executives, and our very own community members. Thank you for coming along for the ride, and we hope you enjoy this episode. You are here today to learn from the best in business, entrepreneurship, and innovation. And today, I have a real treat for you because I am chatting with Bill Corrigan, who joined the world-leading consulting firm McKinsey as an expert associate partner in 2018, where he works with clients globally to drive digital transformation, specializing in internet of things, edge computing, public cloud, and advanced analytics, all these very impressive things. (laughs) And uh, having started his career at IBM, Bill then worked for a number of startups in various leadership roles, such as chief product officer and chief strategy officer. Bill no doubt has a vast wealth of entrepreneurial experience under his belt. And to top it off, Bill also restarted a failed startup that then sold to Microsoft for $300 million. That is insane. By the end of this interview, you will be equipped with the mindsets you need to make your entrepreneurial ventures a success. You will have the belief that you can carve out your own career path and you will feel that you can accomplish any business goal that you set your mind to. With that said, thank you so much for coming on today, Bill. I'm so excited to chat with you. Uh, Same here, Yasmina. I'd love to talk about uh, entrepreneurship. Perfect. Uh, So my first question for you is what originally got you onto your entrepreneurial journey? Um, You know, a couple things, I think, looking back at it. it, um, I I always was a risk taker. um, And and so, therefore, uh, I always felt I could bet on myself. Uh, You know, even coming out of undergrad, I... I had worked as a financial analyst for an insurance company in Boston, and uh, I'd gone to Boston University, and they offered me a full-time job, and it was it was a really good job. Um, and uh, at the time, the job market was horrendous for 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 undergrads coming out. So I turned it down, uh, frankly, because you know I felt that I didn't want to just be part of a big. A, a cog and a big wheel. Um, I really wanted to, to do something a little bit more interesting. And so I instead became a bartender in the Caribbean. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, my parents were a little disappointed that uh, that was the, the choice that I made. But uh, no, I knew I, I had worked several jobs through undergrad and uh, put myself through school and knew I needed to blow up a little steam before I really hunkered down and started with my career. So um, I wasn't worried about taking you know, some time off to go do something fun. I, I felt like my youth, you know, you only, only have your youth for a certain amount of time. So take advantage of it and take advantage of that freedom. So I did that. Um, and then uh, when I came back to, to, to reality after living in St. Thomas, um, I started to look around and uh, there weren't many jobs available uh, and uh, was willing to do just about anything to break into technology. I knew uh, this was the early 90s, and I felt like the technology was where I wanted to, to take my career eventually. And so um, ended up finding a, a, a job for Lotus Development, uh, which was the maker of Lotus 123, which was the precursor to Microsoft Excel. 
And uh, the only job they had was doing answering the phone in the middle of the night for tech support. And I said, fine, I'll do it. Uh, they gave me a, an increase in pay because I was working after hours. Uh, but it also gave me a lot more freedom and time when the phones would die down to actually learn new skills. So we were just coming out with a new product called Lotus Notes at the time. And I saw the manual there. I installed it on my computer and quickly became one of the experts within Lotus of Lotus Notes, which was a brand new product nobody knew. So I sort of took that and, and became the, one of the you know, company's notes experts at the age of 23. Wow, that's really impressive. And what, because obviously, what, what did it take for you to think, I mean, my first question is, what did it take for you to think that you could actually go out and take risks and that you could bet on yourself? What, what gave you that belief that you could do that? Right. Um, so a couple of things. One is always thinking about like, what's the worst that could happen? You know, like even when I moved to St. Thomas, I'm like, if, if I move down there and I don't find a job or I don't find where I want to be, well, get a, I get a great vacation out of it for three or four weeks and then I come home. Um, same thing with uh, taking a chance of not not accepting that job coming out of undergrad. It was like, all right, well, I've always been resourceful. I'm a smart person. I feel like I can I can uh, scratch out a living doing something. Um, I feel pretty confident that I can I can add value to lots of different situations. Um, and, and and then just I think that St. Thomas experience also gave me a ton of uh, a ton of confidence throughout my early career. No matter how bad it got, I always felt like, hey, I could always buy a, a four hundred dollar flight back to St. Thomas and be a bartender. So it sort of gave me like, hey, that, if that's the worst case scenario that's going to happen to me when I'm twenty five, well, that's not a bad thing. So I think. A lot of it is we get very wrapped up sometimes about thinking about like, oh, I've got to succeed. I've got to, I've got to do this. But it's like the failure part isn't so bad, you know, it, it, especially if it's if it's failure, meaning like, hey, I tried to start a company and it didn't work out. You know, yeah, that didn't work out. But what you learned, you may have learned 30 valuable lessons that now you're going to take to your next startup. And, and I think that's one of the things that for me, um, trying to be in the moment a lot more, uh, you know, and, and I couldn't do this when I was 25, but now that I'm in my fifties, I can do this. I understand the value of being in the moment. So you're not like, Oh my God, what if something doesn't happen? It's like, enjoy the moment that you're in. Enjoy no matter how arduous it is or how, how much of the, you hate it. They are like last week I was working until three o'clock in the morning, a couple nights on a couple of different client studies. Um, no one really wants to work till three o'clock in the morning, but the value I got out of it, we, we honed some really nice diamonds for, for our client and, and it felt great doing that. So that's, that's part of it too. It's just, you know, being confident in yourself and, and being able to, to understand that whatever you d decide, you can always sort of undo it at a later time. And, and, and worst case scenarios are really not that bad most of the time. Yeah, I think when you when you come to peace with the worst case scenario, that takes a lot of pressure off. And I right. think what you say about living in the present is so key because so many people are caught up in, oh my God, the future. Ah. Yeah. And there, there's all this anxiety about what will happen or there's this, this anxiety about what happened in the past. But as Eckhart Tolle, who wrote The Power of Now, says, the game of life is played in the present. 
right. once you really come to peace with what's happening now, then you can really start to enjoy the adventure, which I think exactly. is really awesome. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So it sounds like you've you've jumped into a lot of different projects. You work with a lot of different startups, and it sounds like early on you understood the value of well, let me become an expert in this thing, right? So that then I am the point of authority in the port of call. And people are going to come to me because now I've learned this to mastery and then you can take that mastery elsewhere. Right. So I'm wondering, yeah, where did this come from, this desire to just learn different things and apply it in lots of different contexts? Um, yeah, so, I mean, that's just intellectual curiosity. Um, I've always uh, been been uh, in, enticed to sort of products, building products, using products. I've always been interested in in you know the things that I like to use, whether it's a particular type of mobile phone or or or, or what a particular type of bicycle, how do they engineer it? How do they how do they know how to build it? And and so I always kind of gravitated to that. I started as I mentioned at at, at Lotus, and then we we got acquired by IBM, and it was it was a lot of fun going through that acquisition. But then I also realized I didn't want to be part of such a giant organization. Um, so that's when I first left. Uh, Lotus to go to a startup. Um, but I also wanted to, to just be able to have a better purview into all of the aspects of running a business. So going to a startup, we we're a 14 person company and I was the chief product officer. Um, it, it gave you an opportunity to do everything. So pricing strategy and uh, how do you know, who are the partners we need to talk to? What are the product features? How do we service the customer? How do you know, how do you market it? Um, so it gave, you know, one of the things I've always loved about sort of being on the product management side of things is it, you're almost like the CEO of a product and, and you're figuring out exactly how useful it is in different settings. And, and what you do is in a successful startup is you really need to assimilate your customer's perspective. So whether you're building, you know, a, a bicycle or building, um, systems management tools for desktop administrators, which is one of the things I did in my past. You need to put yourself into their shoes and understand their day-to-day -day activities and what are the challenges that they face. And, and then once you can do that effectively, then it becomes really evident of what you need to do to either build the right product for them or deliver it to them through the right means and, and market it the right way. And it becomes kind of a fairly um, mundane exercise after that point. But it, I think a lot of people miss that point of like, how do you assimilate that perspective of that of that target customer um, as opposed to working from a product out like so many engineers come up with a great idea i was just on the phone yesterday with three brilliant engineers from a from a, a large technology company and they were explaining to me this really cool new file system that they had developed and all the and my first question was okay what's the benefit you know who uses this and what's the benefit and they could not give me one use case. And so my homework assignment for them was, go guys, go back and think about why you gestated this idea in the first place. What were the problems you were trying to solve and what settings? And then be able to write that down on one piece of paper and then come back and we'll, we'll start to have a conversation about whether your company should invest more in this and how it would fit into your broader product, product portfolio. So. Mm, definitely. I think it's, I think people can get so wrapped up in an idea and get so excited about the idea that they can forget about 
the target market and who is right. it serving and what problem does it solve and, and what are the pain points? <laughs> Will they pay for it? That's a big one. It's like we, we often ask this question with our clients uh, is like, okay, these are all interesting ideas, but are they, you know, we'll go through multiple analyses of, of sort of um, how, how to determine whether something has value or not for the, for the target customer. But oftentimes that's that's what it comes down to. It might not be the best idea, but it's the it's the idea that customers are willing to pay for. Exactly. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting about that target market research is you can have a lot of people say, oh, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Awesome. Right. And then you're like, cool. Why don't you buy one? They're like, eh. you yeah. know, and it, it's like that proof of payment <laughs> is right. such a such a key thing. Yeah. Right. I'm um, so I'm wondering because you've jumped on so many different startups you work with so many different things you're absorbing all these different you're applying so many things across industry i think the, the exciting thing about in startups as you said is you have to get your hands dirty and you have to basically learn everything because it's so small and right. you're building an idea from the ground up uh, i've heard that there's a very interesting story behind how you got involved with softricity so mm. i'd love to hear that story uh, yeah, so Softricity was a was a restart. So uh, it was it was funded as a company called Software Wow uh, out of the Boston Computer Museum, and was designed to be a, a streaming game platform for the computer museum itself. So rather than them having to go out and touch the different computers around the museum, they could have a centralized server that would stream games out to them, and then uh, the games would run on those those computers. And then they thought they could take that to a broader gaming platform across the internet. Um, took a ton of funding, about $30 million, uh, and it failed miserably. And I just happened to be uh, lifting weights one day with a, with a gentleman at a gym, and I was in between jobs. Um, my other startup had failed, and so he, he, he mentioned, we were just talking about what we do, and, and he said, um, he goes, oh, so you, you, you're you like a product person. You understand how to like build products. I said, sometimes. Um, and he goes, what it, what it, he goes, we have this company we've invested in. Would love to have you take a just quick look at them. Would you meet the C CTO? Um, I said, sure. So I went into their office on a Saturday. I met their CTO, who was this brilliant uh, guy named Stuart Schaefer, who had come out of MIT. And Stuart had built an amazing set of technologies for this startup, but they were not solving a problem that somebody would pay for, going back to that point. So he and I sat there on a Saturday whiteboarding out exactly what the technology did. And it really dawned on me then that I said, well, Stuart, if you could do this, if you could virtualize a, a game, could you also virtualize, say, Microsoft Word? He said, oh, yeah, it's the same types of executables and DLLs and whatnot. I said, well, that's a problem that I see in the corporate world all the time. And I knew it from my Lotus Notes days that our Lotus Notes client would get installed on a computer and break it like so often. And so I knew Windows applications had, a, had this inherent problem of breaking computers. I said, that, I think that's a big problem that we could solve. And so it was sort of like his brilliant technology sort of acumen mixed with my understanding of the market coming together. Now all of a sudden it was like, all right, now we know what we want to be. And so we, we put a stake in the sand of like, we're going to work on every single Windows application. We had a VP of engineering who was very risk averse. So what he had said was, well, we can do like certain apps, but we can't do all apps. 
And I'm like, Bob, that's not gonna, that's not gonna get us to the huge valuation. Nobody's, nobody's gonna pay us a lot of money to solve one or two applications for them. They will pay us a lot of money if we can solve all of their Windows applications. So I put a stake in the sand. I, I joined the company. I put a stake in the sand and said, we are going to solve this for every single Windows application. And some of the engineers quit because they, they thought it was too hard of a problem to solve. But we had a couple of real rock star people, too, that said, you know what? Even though we can't do it right now, I think we can. I think we can eventually get there. And we and we iterated and we tested and the first few customers blew up in our face. And But eventually we got there to the point where you had critical mass. Um, and it was it was really, uh, you know, and you start with one customer and you, you literally do everything you can for that one customer. And then you learn and then you do a couple more and, and, and you start to build that that base of uh, early adopters. Um, that is, you know, your classic if you if you ever read like Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm, they always have that early adopters, but then the big leap is crossing over to the, the mainstream customers that are willing to buy it on a you know continual basis. Mm, definitely. I'm really curious because it sounds like there was a lot of persistence involved, right? And it's interesting because when you're in the startup world, things fail, sometimes things don't go the way you want to. <laughs> I mean, most of the time things fail uh, right. and then you've got to iterate and then you've got to improve and then you've got to test. How do you know when to how do you know when to pivot? How do you know when to persist? And how do you know when it's just like maybe it's time to give up on this one and work on something new? Right. Good point. Those are those are great questions. I mean, the first thing is you need to be at a startup or any type of entrepreneurial effort. You need serious intestinal fortitude. And you also need to be able to have the mentality of um, in, in the U.S. In, in U.S. baseball, we have this concept of a closer. And the closer is the guy that comes in to pitch the last inning of a game to close it out. And so as the closer, you have a ton of pressure on you. And if you if you fail, if you give up a home run one day, well, the next day they're going to bring you in to try and close the game out again. You can't be thinking about yesterday's home run that you gave up. You have to be thinking, I'm going to dominate in this scenario. And and that's that's the that's the mentality you kind of have to have because when I when I advise I advise a lot of young younger people at McKinsey who are who are looking to leave McKinsey to go out into industry, and I said the the first thing you need to understand is that most of your experience when you're at a startup is pretty miserable. Like you're you're working really hard, you're 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 doing you try to do everything right, but there's so many forces that are against you that you know over the course of a week. 90% of, of your experience might be negative, but that little 10% is what gets you like excited about the next week. Um, you know, so we'll give you an example. At Softricity, we had a, we had a large software company that was exploring our, our software as they, they were saying, hey, you know, we want to buy you guys. And this was probably two years into it. We're all excited. We worked with them. They signed a non-disclosure and all that. They took our software away for a month. And part of the, the, the agreement was they had to give us a, a detailed analysis of what they thought of it at the end. Well, they sent us a half-page note about their analysis, and we didn't hear from them for a week. And then a week later, we saw a press release that they were announcing a product that was exactly our product. So that this was a big publicly traded company, and now they had stolen our ideas under the auspices of they were going to think of buying us and now we're had announced pre-announced 
the exact product that we had. Uh, and so it was like, you know, next thing you know, our investors are in a panic and all that kind of thing. And really, it was my, it was our, our management team that really said, you know, yeah, you know what's great about that? They're going to create more excitement about this market than we ever could have done with our little tiny marketing budget. And yet we're going to be so laser focused on solving the customer problem because this is the only thing we do. We're going to, we're going to be better than them. So they're going to create bake off situations. And, and so we kept everybody internally from panicking and, and kept going. And, and, and that's exactly how it played out. This, this other company created all kinds of marketing materials and they did webinars and, and they never had a product. And eventually, Two years later, they came back to try to buy us at 10 times the price that it would have cost them two years earlier. And they ended up, they ended up losing out to, to Microsoft in that scenario because Microsoft was then interested. Yeah, I think it's, it's so fascinating, right? It's like, it, it just goes to show how you can have an idea. And I think a lot of people try and keep their ideas under lock and key because of copycats and potential competitors and stuff like that. But if you have that laser focus like you guys did and you know that you know, we we are the people who are going to able to be able to execute and implement on this best. I think it's so interesting how something that seemed like a potentially disastrous situation turned around like you for that. Right. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. McKinsey, we talk about, um, you know, the, the Goliaths um, need to think like an entrepreneur and how fast can they pivot to being an entrepreneur? Whereas the entrepreneurs need to get to scale as fast as possible. And so there's this competition going on between the incumbents and, and the, um, the, the entrepreneurs. Um, and so, you know, both can win, but they have to do a pivot. Uh, you know, the, 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 the small entrepreneurial company needs, needs to get to scale quickly. And that big behemoth needs to figure out how to not be so bureaucratic and slow moving and be able to adapt. Um, and so it's, it's a hard problem to solve. Definitely. I'd love to know, what did it take for you to get it to the point where Microsoft was now interested and eventually sold to them for $300 million? Um, it was, it was a, a series. Of, it, I mean, it really came down to a couple of things. One was um, part of what we did right from the start was had good engineering hygiene. So uh, we didn't, we would try to do things right from an engineering um architecture perspective, even if it took a little bit longer to do it. Um, so instead of just rushing features to market, we wanted to make sure that our platform was scalable. Um, so that was actually one of the main reasons why Microsoft, our acquisition flew through very quickly in their, in their due diligence process. Um, but the big, big thing was establishing ourselves as a leader in a brand new category um, and the way you do that is, is, you know, there's some marketing involved and we always had tiny marketing budgets, but we were very, um, we used guerrilla marketing quite a bit. We would leverage other, other technology companies and, and sort of be part of their booth, for instance, instead of, instead of buying our own booth at a trade show. Um, we would do a ton of webinars and, and, and seminars to, to educate people about, it was, it was all around desktop management and managing desktops and securing them and things. So we would do a lot of free webinars for that. Um, and ultimately it was, it was about building a, a customer base. So, you know, Microsoft started to hear from Merrill Lynch and some of these other big Bank of America and other big companies that were using our, our tool. 
Um, and Microsoft at first looked at us as a competitor to this system center configuration manager product, which allowed you to deploy applications. Um, and so one of the things that we did that, um, that really worked in our favor was instead of making them feel like they were uh, an adversary, I embraced what they were building. So I, I, came, I came out with a, an extension that we said, this is the Softricity extension for Microsoft System Center Config Manager. So it was, it was vaporware. We had, we didn't have it. All we had was a, what was a PowerPoint, but I started to do webinars about how you could continue to keep your system center intact and we would run in conjunction with it and we would solve the problem of virtualizing applications. And at that point, all of a sudden, the product managers from Microsoft and, and Brad Anderson, who was the head of their um, system center team, started to call us and say, hey, this is really interesting. We'd like to learn a little bit more. And, and we started to have some conversations with them. Uh, and then, you know, we were kind of going along with a nice relationship. We were part of their partner program. We would show up at their, their conferences. Uh, and they would kind of whisper in us like, yeah, you guys are still a little too small for us, but, you know, maybe at some point in the future we could think about, you know, acquisition. Uh, but the, the other company I was talking about, I don't want to mention their name, but the other company that had tried to buy us all of a sudden came in with an unsolicited bid to buy the company. And we went back to Microsoft and said, hey, you know, we're not going to be around a year from now because our board is going to accept this offer. And and Microsoft made it happen over the course of two weeks. We had five or six different offers from both companies and they kept going back and forth. And uh, Microsoft finally, uh, the funny story was that the CEO of the other acquiring company had a, a, an overnight flight to Japan uh, and he was uh, on a plane and he was, he, they were also very tied to Microsoft. So Microsoft talked to them on a regular basis. Well, the Microsoft knew that this, this gentleman was jumping on a plane. There was no internet connectivity back then. And they sent us the, a final offer and said, here's our final offer. You have a half hour to sign this. And if you don't sign it, it's fine. We'll still be partners with you. But if you, if you do sign it, we're going we're gonna to require you. And so it was such a great offer that we signed it. And the other gentleman got off the plane in Japan and found out he had lost out on the bid. Wow, it's it's crazy how things can happen so fast in, right. in business. Right. Yeah, I think it's it was so smart the move that you made to to reframe the competition to collaboration, definitely. Right. And um, what you talked about leads me to ask because obviously when you have a startup, you build something, you sell something, or you partner with companies, or M and A's happen, all these kinds of things. And I know you've been involved in that kind of stuff. So I'm really curious to hear from your perspective. What, in your opinion, makes a good deal? How do you build a good deal, and how can you land good deals, and how can you negotiate a good deal? Right. Good. Good point. You know, it's funny. I always have a a, a saying that I come up with that says, you know, good companies are bought; they're not sold. And what I mean by that is, you build a great company that is, you know, too often. Companies start with the the, the, the the idea that we're going to IPO or we're going to be sold. We're going to, you know, here are the three or four companies that could, that could acquire us. And that's 100% the wrong mentality to have because 
now you're for, you're working toward that one financing event as opposed to building a great company. Um, and so, yeah, you might get the company sold, but will it be the right valuation that you should have had? Um, will it will it be to the right to the right suitor for the culture of your of your employees? Um, and I did some consulting about 10 years ago for a company in the UK. And, you know, this was after we had sold uh, Softricity to, to Microsoft and after I left Microsoft. And the CEO said, Bill, how do we get sold? And I'm like, I told her, you know, you don't. You build a great company. Just, you know, go back to the basics of what is the customer? What does the customer need? How do you build a big cadre of customers and a big base? Then, you know, that's when people start getting interested in you. So then it gets to the point where you can pick and choose. You can you, you could say, we're independent. We're, we're doing well without you, you know. And so you don't necessarily, the best time to sell the company is when you don't have to sell the company. Um, and, and oftentimes, too, it just comes down to, you know, in the case of Softricity, what I was looking at was we were selling an average desktop product for about $200 per desktop. I knew that this was such a critical piece of infrastructure for Microsoft that whether they bought us or not, they were going to need to do something in this space. And so as soon as they would announce something, our price was going to go from $200 to $20 per. You know, so it would have meant for us to hit our numbers, we would have to do 10x the volume. And there was just no way we were going to be able to do that. So to me, that final year that we were, it was our fourth year in business, I knew it was it was the turning point of either we either make it or break it. And if we if we make it, it's going to be a great successful exit. If we break, it's going to probably still be an exit, but it's going to be pennies on the dollar kind of thing. Uh, and so that's what we knew at that point that the the market was aligning and such that it just it also was something that companies were starting to demand that you have the types of resources for support that we could not provide as a little hundred person company at that point. So it became very evident for us at that point. I was at another company that we, you know, my first startup that I left uh, Lotus for, we had a great product. It was just way ahead of its time. It was an intranet in a box for small to medium businesses. People didn't even know what intranets were at that point. We had come out of Lotus. We'd been building intranets for people with Lotus notes. And now all of a sudden, you know, we're trying to target small to medium businesses. Ten years later, there's, you know, the concept of Slack and, and things like that that are multi-billion dollar valuations. And we ended up having to, you know, just close that company down because we couldn't get enough people interested in it. Mm. Yeah, I think it's really interesting what you said about building a really good company. I'm building a really high quality product that customers are excited about, you understand your customer inside out. And then you get to the point where you don't need anything from anyone. Right. And then that's the point where it's the best time to start selling. I thought right. that was a, a really, really interesting approach. Right. Yeah. And the other thing is the culture. You know, I mean, like I said, so many negative things happen from the external externalities during the course of a startup that you need to have a good culture inside. If you have any kind of infighting um, or the, you know, us versus them, like engineering team versus product versus sales, you're not going to be successful. So uh, a lot of it comes back to the leadership and having sort of that guiding, you know, guiding light of like, we're going to be successful. Yeah, we're going to hit some some hiccups along the way, but we all need to work together. And I think also 
making sure that you have regular like company-wide meetings like a monthly basis at a minimum when you're a small company and so everybody can air things out and, and you don't get these little pockets of fiefdoms around even even a small company you can start to have some infighting especially when things aren't going well people will look for excuses or people will look to point fingers and so you got to make sure that everybody is is pulling in the same direction and, and the best way to do that is to give people as much information as possible. So we used to share, you know, at our, our monthly meetings at, at, uh, within Softricity, we would show the books to everybody. We'd show, here's how much financing we have. Here's how much, here's what our monthly burn rate is. Here's um, what we're doing from a sales perspective. So everybody knew exactly sort of where we were. We didn't keep it, keep people in the dark. And I think, you know, when you're dealing with smart, intelligent employees, that's what you want. The, you want to entrust them to do their job, but you also want to give them the right information. Definitely. Yeah, I'm really curious as to what you have to say when it comes to, like, in your opinion, what makes a really good leader? Um, yeah, there's lots of things. I mean, the, the whole concept of servant leadership um, has become, you know, very popular. And I'm a big believer in it. Um, and, and we do teach this uh, to many of our clients at, at McKinsey is uh, really as a leader, you need to be able to, to define a clear vision of where you want to take, whether it's a company or your department within a company, and have clear, clearly uh, defined set of uh, initiatives that are supporting your ultimate goals, that support your ultimate vision. And so if you're head of uh, marketing, are your marketing programs aligned with the overall vision for, for the company? And are you, are you working toward those goals? So first, the first and foremost is making sure that there's this clear communication of what the overall vision and goals are for the company. The other is removing obstacles for people, whether it's, you know, hiring obstacles or, um, you know, in the case of Softricity, we had an excellent CEO. He didn't know much about the operational side of the business, but what he did very well was he kept the board away from us. He kept, he kept the funding at a level that we never had to starve the business and the board never got, you know, too far into our day-to-day -day business. And I've seen that happen where, you know, the boards, they want to help um, or the investors want to help and they don't particularly help. They just get in the way because they ask the very obvious questions that you've already asked a hundred times ahead of time. And you've already figured out why that's not going to work. So he did a really nice job of shielding us from that. Uh, and then, you know, whenever anything bad would happen to us, he, this, this gentleman, Harry Ruda, he would just say, we're going to be a super successful software company. I know we will. We're going to, we have the right people. And, and just having that confidence in us, uh, helped us, uh, you know, and, and the other thing is, um, from a leadership perspective, being humble, um, you know, and really humility goes a long way, uh, both with your employees and your customers, um, Nobody wants to deal with an arrogant CEO or an arrogant um, company itself. Uh, eventually, they, they say, you know what? We have other alternatives. So those are a couple of the, of the attributes. Uh, the other thing is just from a work ethic, um, you know, everybody needs to be sort of pulling in the same direction. Uh, if you have certain teams that are not, you know, you have certain teams that are working 80-hour weeks and others that are working 40, it's going to cause friction. Um, so... You need to figure out why are the people working 80? You know, first of all, that's not sustainable over a long period of time. 
and then you know other others that need to be doing a little bit more um and, and that's sort of you know making sure that the the culture and, and the um, way of working is 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 working throughout the, the company i think amazon does a very nice job of this with their their, their leadership development uh, principles um and, and you know and, and when they when they interview people they really you know look for that cultural fit and and are you willing to to put the customer first and those those kinds of things yeah definitely a lot of really powerful insights in there so much to unpack i think what you said about the vision is so important and that everyone is aligned with that vision and then also the belief when mm-hmm. the leader has belief then the the employees or the people working around the leader will also have belief because the leader has the belief the leader right. doesn't have the belief then no one else is going to believe in it the customers aren't going to believe in it um, i think it's such an important insight right and sometimes you have to put a game face on too i mean there were times um not just at Southtricity, but other companies where i've been like holy cow i don't know how we're going to be successful here but i had to go in front of my my team and and put that game face on and say you know here's here's the positives here's here's the negatives and i think the positives far outweigh the negatives and i'm willing to work as hard as i possibly can to to overcome some of the the the, the headwinds that we might have and and you know i think people appreciate that too that if you're willing to roll up your sleeves and it goes back to that concept of servant leadership you know you don't want to just delegate things and let and have people working um you know millions of hours without you also getting in the trenches with them and doing it um and and that's that's really important definitely definitely and i think also as as a leader and someone who's in the world of business and entrepreneurship you end up meeting and dealing with a lot of people and so given that I'm really curious um if you have any particular philosophies or approaches when it comes to building relationships with people. Right, right. Yeah, it's funny um because you know there's a big push around diversity diversity and inclusion obviously throughout business these days. And for me it's all it's never been an issue in that I find each person fascinating and each person has their own set of talents and 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 they could bring so much to the table and and what i found especially when you're at a startup when you have when you're starting say with four people when you add that fifth person you're at, you're now increasing your capacity by 25% of the company right so um it's amazing when you when you add somebody who's good at what they do uh whether it's like like a few years ago i was running marketing for a tiny little company and and we added in a social uh social media marketing person who was really good at just creating social media programs and the value that she was able to bring was just amazing you know and, and like incrementally just saw like the company got that much bigger and that much better um and so a lot of it comes down to that and and like i said to appreciating people's different perspectives so you have people you know and this is one of the things i love about mckinsey is that we have people from you know imperial college we have people from like myself i went to boston university um we have computer science people we have you know people who come from industry we have all different types of people that come together to solve problems and i'm always amazed when we bring you know i might think i already have a problem solved and i have my 10 bullet points listed out and then we do a brainstorming session you know we call them problem solving and there's 15 other things that i never thought of because it just didn't cross my 
my uh, purview at all. And, um, and, and I think that's also a culture. If you can create a culture where people are willing to speak up and bring ideas um, to the table, that's also really amazing. Um, at Microsoft, we had a thing called Think Week where everybody in the company can come up with an idea and you put your idea down on paper and Bill Gates would actually read through the top 50 to 100, depending on the year, and get and you'd actually get a chance to, to present your idea to Bill Gates. Um, and and I love that sort of culture of like anybody in the company can come up with a good idea and let's continue to encourage that so that people don't feel like, oh, well, that's not my department. You know, I've seen engineers that came up with some great marketing ideas. Um, in fact, some of my best marketing programs came out of a conversation I had with an engineer. Uh, so it's it's very strange how that can happen. Yeah, I think it's incredible how you have that diversity of skill sets, which is really what breeds innovation and the diversity perspectives. When someone can take a fresh look at a problem and see it in a completely different light. I think um, <clears throat> if I remember correctly, I think it was Disney as well that had that kind of approach where literally anyone in the company all the way down to the cleaners can right. pitch any idea, which I think is incredible because that is what drives innovation. Yeah, yeah. It, kind of. If you look back to that idea of like the, the shared vision, um, there's a there's a pretty famous uh, medical center in the U.S. called Mayo Clinic, uh, and if you read uh, leadership books, you'll often see Mayo Clinic uh, cited. They, um, I, I read a book about leadership where. They went into one of the operating rooms after the end of the day, and there was a woman in there cleaning, and she, they said she was amazing. She did this amazing cleaning job of the operating rooms. And when they interviewed her, they said, so what, you know, what makes you so motivated? She goes, I'm saving people's lives. Because she saw, she had been shown how, how important it is for her to have those operating rooms ready for the doctors who are performing the emergency operations. And, and if that, if she doesn't do her job right, then the doctors can't do theirs, they can't save lives. And so she, they have taught that sort of culture of how every job is super important. And, and, and it's like, I love that idea too. It's like every single, you know, you don't just hire people for some random reason. There's always a reason why somebody is taking a specific role on and they're all as equally as important. I love that. That is so interesting. That is so, I love how you can tie the tiniest cog in the wheel to the big vision right. and make it important and relevant as well. That is right. so interesting. Um, I am conscious of time. Um, I would love to know more about you and what are some of the, I've heard that you like to talk about the idea of pre-made choices. And I'm curious to know what kind of pre-made choices or, or rules, you know, do you have for your life that set you up for success? Mm, yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, for me, um, it's, it's about, you know, I've always had a ridiculous work ethic. Even when I was a little boy, I started working at a flower shop at the age of six years old and used to work there you know, like eight hours on a Saturday, eight hours on a Sunday, and, a, you know, weeding and things like that. So I've always had a good engine from a work ethic perspective, um, which I think is just, you have to have that to, to, to be successful. Um, the other thing is, um, I, you know, 
we had some tragedy in my family early on. I had a brother that, that died in a boating accident. And I think that kind of, and I was very young. I was only um, four years old when it happened, but I saw the downstream ramifications to my family. And I think that put, put a lot of things in perspective for me that um, life is very short. It's such a cliche, but we're only here for a certain amount of time. So try to take advantage of every situation you're presented, whether it's an opportunity to work for a startup or an opportunity to go to a, an elite university, taking advantage of that, of those gifts that you're given um, and, and putting them to, 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 the, to the fullest, um, uh, you know, stretching it to the fullest is, is key for me. Um, I always feel like I've been blessed with lots of great opportunities, but I also look back and I've created a lot of those opportunities for myself by, by working hard or studying or, or doing the right things of understand, like the case of Lotus Notes, I saw that that's sort of a future. So I, I invested the time to do it. Um, while at the same time, just having a ton of fun along the way, like I'm, 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 I'm very much an extrovert. So I, I do make friends easily and I have friends all around the world. But I also value lots of different cultures. So I love having friends in Portugal and, and China and um, lots of friends in, you know, throughout the United States. And, and being a little bit more well-rounded like that, I think, helps me. Uh, it helps me cope. Um, and then finally, just like having really strong relationships with my wife and with some good friends. I have still friends from when I was in high school that I talked to on a weekly basis um and and bounce ideas off of i think having those bonds really helped me a lot i think that those long-term relationships that long-term loyalty can be really powerful it's like you can't you can't make a new you can't like make an old friend you know right. you can't like newly make an old friend that doesn't work yeah, um yeah that's really incredible um i i totally agree that it's so important to have fun along the way otherwise you know what's the point life is short as you say right. Right. And the thing is, too, like, find it sounds like it's not one of these cliches I want to throw at you, but find what you love to do um, and, and try to pursue that. So whether you're, you know, a consultant working at McKinsey and finding the right tribe to attach yourself to and be part of that practice or whether you're an entrepreneur. Um, I just had had breakfast with uh, an entrepreneur here in Boston who's a former McKinsey person last week. And he had five or six ideas. And he's like, I think this one would be viable. And I think this one would be viable. And he had three or four different ones. And I was like, you know, which one are you passionate about? Which one do you think you get excited, you know, going in at five o'clock in the morning and, and working on it? And he's like, well, none of them. I said, then don't do them. Like, the, yeah, they're all perfectly viable business opportunities. But unless you have that passion, you're not going to be able to withstand like the the rigor and all those downtimes. So eventually you're just going to say, this isn't worth it for me. So you got to find that thing that you're really passionate about. Um, and it might not even be the most um, lucrative opportunity, but it's something you're passionate about, but it, it, you know, it's something you're going to get excited about doing on a day-to-day -day basis with the, with the people that you want to do it with too. And then that's, Mm. so important finding the right partners and finding the right mentors and finding the right investors um that's you know that's why it's so hard to be successful as a, as a startup because all these things need to sort of come together yeah yeah it's it's only when you have the passion the people and and all of those 
those different elements combined that you can really be fulfilled and enjoy the journey every day and be right. excited about it. Even on those days that are hard, you still right. believe in the bigger vision. Yeah, that's exactly. really, that's awesome. I think that's a great segue for me to go into my final question for you, Bill, which is what are three key truths about the entrepreneurial journey that you would share with the young entrepreneur today? All right, three key truths. Um, for one thing, um, don't get discouraged by short-term setbacks. Um, having that even keel sort of longer-term vision is is tantamount to, to success. Um, the second is going back to my point about assimilating the customer's perspective. Um, you can never know too much about your customer. And this is actually something we do in part of our, what we call leap practice at McKinsey, where we help, we help uh, companies build digital businesses. Within the first two or three days, we've already developed a hypothesis and we're testing that hypothesis with customers and voice of the customer interviews. And you start to get that feedback immediately. Um, I, it was amazing to me when I joined Microsoft and I took over several product teams. I had some product managers who had never spoken to a customer. And I said, how can you possibly do your job? If you, they're like, well, you know, I read books and I read, I read reports from our sales team. I'm like, you got to talk to the customers. And they're like, well, we don't have a travel budget. I'm like, I don't care. You know, we're Microsoft. We're here in Puget Sound. We have, 3,000 customers in Puget Sound driving distance. You don't need to get on a plane. We have an executive briefing center across the street. So I, I actually forced part of our quarterly uh, commitments. I, I forced people to, to do at least three customer briefings per quarter because I wanted them to get that firsthand customer knowledge. So cust customer um, understanding your customers is so important. And probably the third one I would say is, is about culture um, and, and being respectful of, of everyone within the organization. And if, if, if there are people that are not uh, respectful of that culture, being able to call them out and, and, and confront them about it because culture, lack of culture or any kind of infighting has, I've seen kill great companies, uh, great ideas, great companies that it just, it, it can be so invasive. Uh, so those are probably the three that I would mention. Hmm. Really important takeaways, especially about the customer as well, because your your customer will tell you what they want. They will show you what they want. Really right. powerful. Um, thank you so much, Bill. You clearly have so much experience under your belt. This has been extremely enlightening. Um, this would be your opportunity to plug anything that you'd like to plug that would be worth plugging or um, you know, where can people find you? Sure, sure. Well, you know, happy to, to have follow-on conversations with yourself, Yasmina, or others. Um, they can always find me on LinkedIn, um, Bill Corrigan at, at McKinsey. Um, and, uh, you know, always uh, willing to help people think through ideas or think through career paths and things like that. At, at this point in my, my career, I get far more self-actualization and, and enjoyment from helping others succeed than my own. You know, I'm, I'm kind of at the point where I'm very happy where I am. I have a great wife. We have great a great life. And I really want to help others achieve their their goals and dreams. Mm, definitely. And and make an impact. That's yeah. really incredible. It's really incredible. 
Well, thank you so much, Bill. I've had an absolute blast chatting to you. Yeah, me too. Thanks, Yasmina.